Well, thank you for that great introduction, George. I appreciate it. Well, most people at some point consider a change of career. They might be looking for a side job, maybe to learn some new skills, but most of the time, the reason is due to a, a, growing, um, a growing sense of being bored at their current profession. In 2004, a man, a man by the name of Frank, he was running a brake factory in Quebec, Canada. He struggled with what most Americans struggle with today, and it's called burnout. Frank was tired of going to work every day and dealing with people that he disliked. So one day, the 34-year-old made up his mind, and he said, I am not going to work no more. I'm not going to continue to work myself to death. I'm fed up. Then one day, at a red light, he thought to himself, well, why do people go to work and wake up and do these things, right? Why do they start businesses? He said, we do all of that for money. And it was in that moment that Frank decided that he was going to start printing fake money. <laughs> Although Frank came up, with a, came up with this idea in 2004, it took, him a, it took him a couple of years to get things started. He wanted to make sure everything was right so that he wouldn't get caught, right? <laughs> he needed his bills to be made from roughly 75% cotton and about 25% linen. Frank contacted tens and tens of companies before a very specialized firm from across the country accepted his order. If you want to hear the rest of that uh, story, just stick around until the end. Today, we will look at Paul's first letter, the letter to the church in Galatia. Uh, Galatia was a region in Central Asia Minor. Today, they will be located in Turkey. On Paul's first missionary trip, him and Barnabas established several churches in Galatia. Uh, the exact amount is unknown, but what we do know is that there were multiple churches. You kind of see that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes, to the churches of Galatia. So, not one church, but multiple. And with that being said, Paul and Barnabas passed through the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So, one could assume that there were four churches in Galatia. Paul starts off his letter with his standard greeting, his name, and his authority for writing this letter, which is due to him being an apostle, not through men, but through God. And Paul reminds them that Jesus Christ gave himself for their sins to deliver them according to the will of the Father, who deserves all of the glory. That then brings us to our text, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Give you guys a brief second to get there if you want there already. Listen to the reading of God's word. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you that we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? 
For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, as always, to be able to hear your word. Uh, Heavenly Father, may you put it on my heart and remind me how weighty of a task it is to preach your word. Heavenly Father, may you keep my teachings in step with your doctrine, and may I be convicted like Paul to not preach any other gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Here's what I believe the main point of our text is today. The consequence of a counterfeit gospel is eternal damnation. I'll repeat that. The main point of this text today is the consequence of a counterfeit gospel is eternal damnation. These churches in Galatia were planted anywhere from 47 A.D. to 48 A.D. And Paul wrote this letter around 49 A.D. So with that that kind of historical context in mind, when we arrive to verse 6, we understand why Paul wrote, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. You, you can replace I marvel with I am astonished or I can't believe that you are turning away so quickly from Christ. As I, as I read this verse, I wondered how Paul felt while writing this. Paul had compassion on believers. Listen to what he writes to the Christians in Thessalonica. In, Thess- in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, Paul writes, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul says, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all of the churches. And again, Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, For God is my witness how, how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. From, from those three verses of Paul explaining his love for God's people, we can conclude that Paul had a strong emotional connection to all Christians, especially those that he specifically had his hands on. You know, I have a son, and lately I've been trying to teach him not to touch the electrical sockets. As one day he walked over to it with his eyes open wide, I raised my voice and I said, Junior, stop. Don't touch that because it could shock you. So he stopped in his tracks and he started to mess with something else. And as I began to have a conversation with my wife, I looked up and there he goes again trying to touch the electrical socket. <laughs> of course I was upset, right? But I believe this is how Paul felt. Paul loved the Galatians as if they were family. In fact, Paul calls them brothers. So as Paul writes this letter, he's frustrated, he's sad, and he's still tender and compassionate. He goes on to say, I marvel that you are so, or rather, I marvel that you are turning away so soon. As I said earlier, that time period from Paul planting the church in this letter couldn't have been no longer than two years apart. It is as if soon as Paul left Galatia, he heard that they are already turning from God. That word turning is translated from the Greek word metatethemy. Metatethemy. I think it's better translated to the English word deserting than the English word turning. Metatethemy was primarily used as a military term. And the idea was that you're in war, right? And instead of you being on your post to have your fellow soldiers back, for whatever reason, you failed to be there. 
So you deserted your fellow brother to possibly be killed because you weren't there. The consequence of such an action today is dishonorable discharge. In 1945, Eddie Slovic, he received the death penalty for that. So what Paul is charging the Galatians with is intentionally leaving their post while at war. Galatians, you left your post, such a crime is worthy of death. And here's who they're deserting. Him who called you in the grace of Christ. The only true authentic gospel is the gospel of grace. Two things that Paul emphasizes is the source, that is who the gospel comes from, which is God, of course, and the instrument, which is grace and not works. And while we're on the topic of the gospel, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And maybe you've never heard the gospel before. Well, the gospel is the good news of God intervening in mankind. You see, we all sin against a holy and righteous God. A God whose standards are perfection. And we were required to keep his perfect standards with perfection. But we couldn't and we'll never be able to. So God wrapped himself in flesh and came and lived in our place as our substitute. We couldn't follow the law of perfection, but Jesus did. And Jesus didn't only live the perfect life that we were required to live, but he also bore our sins. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took our punishment for all of our sins. That's the gospel. The good news is that if you believe this, then Jesus took your punishment and your promised eternal life. And if you reject this, you will be held accountable to God for all of your sins. And because God is a righteous judge, you will go to hell. Which will you choose? Which will you choose? Paul says the Galatians are turning from the gospel of grace. That's God's free gift that demonstrated love and mercy, accomplishing salvation through his death. This gift excludes our works. That's why Paul in Ephesians says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And out of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. To, to turn away from a free gift of God to anything else is insanity. If you ask me, Trey, would you, would you rather collect free paychecks for the rest of your life or continue to work at Metro? That's a no-brainer. Give me the free paychecks, you know? And if you know anything regarding this program, let me know. But every other religion, in some way, shape, or form, has a works-based salvation. Every other religion tells you that there's a set of rules and laws that you have to keep in order to be right with God. Well, they're false, God. So, so what's this different gospel Paul is referring to? Well, later on in this letter, Paul makes it clear that the Judaizers were the ones promoting this different gospel. They were teaching that in order to be a Christian, you know, in order to be right with God, that he or she must confirm to the Mosaic law. And circumcision was necessary for salvation. We see that in chapter 5. Paul writes, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace, for we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, 
but faith working through love. Paul makes it clear that someone is teaching circumcision is necessary for salvation. But he goes on to say neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. In other words, none of the law contributes to your salvation. This is what Paul meant in verse 6. Galatians, you're turning from the free gift of God to works. Look at verse 7. Paul says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul makes it clear that there's not another gospel. Back in verse 6, Paul told the Galatians that they were turning from the gospel of grace to a different gospel. Uh, he's telling them that the gospel that you heard from me and believed is different from what you've been hearing. And here now he makes it clear there's only one authentic saving gospel. There's only one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusivity of the gospel doesn't allow for another way to be made right with God. No, but it's through Jesus Christ and him alone, and every other way is wrong. When I used the, uh, the Waze app, it's a GPS app, and it was first known for its shortcuts and how you could arrive to your destination sooner. Well, Waze now is known for taking you a different way every time you go to the same destination. Thing will take you through back roads, and sometimes the app hasn't been updated and take you right to a dead end, taking you just to cross over the river. Well, thankfully, right, God isn't like these unreliable GPSs, but He gives us clear directions. In fact, this will be the most simple set of directions you've ever received. Write this down The way to heaven is through Jesus. It's through Jesus. The Greek word for another in verse 7 is the word alos. It refers to something of the exact same kind. Paul, he essentially repeats Jesus from John 14, 6, that Jesus is the only way. There's only one gospel. Let's go ahead and look to your neighbor and say, Jesus is the only way. Amen, amen. And if you've heard me preach before, you know at some point in time, there was going to be some interaction. You know, it's got to make sure everybody's awake. But Paul goes on to say, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. As we've said before, those people who Paul is referring to are the Judaizers. Paul tells us that what they're doing is troubling the Galatians. Or you could say they're stirring things up in the Galatian churches. When I was uh, younger, my grandmother and those of her generation, they were called bad children, troublemakers. You know, maybe I was one of them, maybe I wasn't. That's not the point. Uh, they call these kids troublemakers because everything would be going smooth until they get there. And as soon as the, that bad child gets there, they start starting fights and making noise. But the, the worst of all is that all the other kids follow those bad kids, the troublemakers, if you want to call them. And I think that's the point Paul is making. Everything was going well until those Judaizers showed up. And now... Some of the Galatians are following them in their foolishness. But instead of running around like the troublemaking kids, the Judaizers want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Today, I believe what, I believe most people think the worst thing for the church is uh, other religions, you know, the government and who the president is and stuff like the church of Satan. 
But I don't believe that none of those things are the worst threat to the church. I believe the worst threat to the church are when false doctrines make their way into the church and when false doctrines are birthed within the church. And what I mean by that is when a person who is professed to be a Christian then changes his or her doctrine and takes others with them. Listen to what Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, but what I do, I will continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Here's Paul's point. Satan, who we all know is evil, he disguises himself as an angel of light. It wouldn't be appealing if Satan just came to us as he was, but no. Satan wants to trick us into thinking he's truthful and loving. Remember, Satan is a deceiver, and that's what he does. So surely his followers and his ministers will follow after him. For us today as a church, it is imperative that we allow God's word to be a lamp unto our feet. We must, let, we must let God's word steer us from false doctrine. A common thing that I believe that has infiltrated the church is this idea of Jesus plus fill in the blank. Well, honestly, I think it happens unknowingly. I think Christians who mean well, who have a view or conviction so strong against something, they just can't, they just can't believe a Christian could possibly do that. An example on our day is politics. Saints, it's unbiblical to ever make the statement, you can't be a Christian and vote Democrat, or you can't be a Christian and vote Republican. When you make those statements, you're saying we need Jesus, plus we have to vote this way. And Paul disagreed with you. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of, this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one can boast. Saints, we have been saved by grace. The thief on the cross would testify to this in Luke 23. The thief said to Jesus, remember when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus responded, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a wonderful God we serve, right? Amen. Amen. The way the Judaizers perverted the gospel was by mixing the law with the gospel. And to do that, you have to push Jesus away. You're pretty much confessing that, Jesus, you're not enough. I also need my works. Listen to this quote from a commentator. He says, it seems a small matter to mingle the law and the gospel, faith and works, but it creates more mischief than man's brain can conceive. To mix the law and the gospel not only clouds the knowledge of grace, it cuts out Christ altogether. I end quote. All we need is Christ, brothers and sisters. So, one more time. Look to your neighbor and say, all we need is Christ. Amen. Go ahead and look down to verse 8. Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, 
let him be accursed. Paul here is being hypothetical. He gives two extreme situations to make it very clear that the gospel is unchangeable. It's unchangeable because it comes from an immutable God. Notice Paul says, we and not I. He's speaking of all the apostles and, and all his colleagues. And listen to this. The truth outweighs anyone's credentials. The truth outweighs anyone's credentials. No matter who you are or what you've done, no one, Paul said, is to preach a different gospel than was already preached. And that doesn't stop with the apostles. That goes for any teacher, any preacher, every Christian, you are commanded to preach no other gospel. The authority, or you could say the power that brings salvation to all who believes, is in the message. And the, the messenger is only the means of transportation. We ought to keep the gospel intact. There's no need for revisions. There's no need to make any changes because God is incapable of making mistakes. A lot of people try to make the gospel more appealing by omitting some truths from the gospel. Some people have gone to extremes, such as telling people everyone will go to heaven and God welcomes all, so there's no need for repentance. All to rule people in while perverting the gospel. And what you're left with is no gospel at all. Paul goes on to say, or an angel from heaven. Angels' sole purpose were to do God's will and are to do God's will and worship him. Psalm 103.20 says, Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength and do his word, heeding the voice of his word. And Revelation 7.11 reads, All the angels stood around the throne and the elder and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In Psalm 103, the psalmist shows us how the angels obey God. They do his will and they take heed to his voice. And in Revelation 7, John describes the moment when a great multitude from every nation worships God. In verse 9, he starts off with the people. They said salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verse 11, John sees the angels standing around the throne and they're praising God. Angels can't disobey God. So for Paul to use his example shows the severity of such a crime. Paul may be also alluding to how the Jews believe the divine law came through angels. Uh, Hebrews 2.2 2 reads, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and later on in the same book, Galatians 3.19 reads, well, Paul asks a rhetorical question in Galatians 3.19. He says, what purpose did the law serve? Then he goes on to say, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. You see, Paul understood that Judaizers placed a connection between the law and the angels. But Paul tells the Galatians that the angels aren't above the gospel either, nor are they exempt from it. And the end of verse 8 reads, let him be accursed. That word accursed is what most Bible versions have it, has, has it translated as the Greek word, from the Greek word anathema. It means devoted to destruction. One commentator defines it as devoted to the judicial wrath of God. 
I think that definition is clear. It helps us recognize that Paul uses this word to curse the Judaizers and that they are under the righteous wrath of God. You know, the punishment for preaching a counterfeit gospel is eternal damnation. And to put it in layman's terms, the consequence for preaching a counterfeit gospel is hell. Then for God to send them to hell is completely just. Uh, what about the consequence for believing a counterfeit gospel? Well, if a person leaves the grace of Christ and turns to a different gospel, that person was never saved. 1 John 2.19 reads, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that they might be made manifest, that they were not of us. John is saying the only people that desert the gospel are those who were never saved. God's people hold on to the gospel. That's why John says if they had been of us, well, they would have continued with us. And for the most part, most people preach counterfeit gospels for gain, whether it's for, for money or more people to fill their pulpits. It's all ungodly gain, and the punishment for such a crime is hell. Uh, when, you read the, when you read verse 8, keep in mind that anathema, that's the Greek word for accursed, it's meant to have an exclamation point on the end. Paul may have broken his pen when he wrote this down because of how serious the crime was. So in light of that, coming to this verse, this text is completely applicable to us, saints. Paul wrote this letter to a Christian church, and we are a Christian church. So this applies to us as well. Well, first, to stay away from that and kind of guard against that, we must know the gospel. We must study God's word, and we must discern when we hear false doctrine. God's word is, is our sword. It's part of our offensive arsenal. This is why we, we read of the blessed man who meditates on God's word day and night, and Ezra who committed himself to study God's word. Studying God's word isn't only reserved for pastors and elders, but it's for every Christian. You know, some people think that in order to protect yourself from false doctrine, you must learn what the other religions teach. I think that can be helpful, right? But interestingly enough, in Canada, training for identifying counterfeit currency begins with studying genuine money. Now, they are to, um, there are certain identifying characteristics that are added to each bill printed by the Bank of Canada. These characteristics are necessarily difficult to reproduce. They have four simple steps to distinguish a genuine bill. They, they touch it, they tilt it, look at it, and look through it. Bills are printed on a unique cotton-based paper, so touching it will often alert someone if it isn't the same. And when you tilt it, you'll notice the holographic stripe, which is almost impossible to replicate. Now, they spend very little time looking at counterfeit currencies. You know, I think we can learn something from them. We must spend more time studying God's word than trying to learn what false religions teach. Like the Canadian bills, the gospel has characteristics about it that makes it impossible to duplicate. And one of those characteristics are grace. So whenever you hear someone adding works for our salvation, there should be an immediate red flag that raises. And here are a couple of ways that you can grow in studying God's word. One way is by praying and meditating on the text that you are studying. 
Sometimes God's word can be confusing, but God didn't leave us with a book that's unable to be understood. So pray and ask God for help and help you to and help reveal the meaning of the text to you. Another thing is commentaries. And they can be very helpful when they're coming from a reliable resource. A good old ways to go to is Ligonier's top 10 commentaries. And if you want a free commentary, well, you can go to George's office. <laughs> and another way, right, is to listen to your pastor's sermons. Through George's preaching, we can learn better methods on how to study scripture. And a, another application for us from this verse is accountability. Now, Paul says, even if I preach a different gospel, let me be accursed. Saints, all teachers are to be held accountable. George has said this to, to us himself. He said, if I preach heresy, hold me accountable. And that goes for all the future elders here at Cross Life. If Paul, who was an apostle, told the Galatians to hold him accountable, that should go for everyone. In verse 9, Paul says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you, then what we have received, rather than what you have received, let him be accursed. But Paul repeats himself in verse 8, but this time he, he broadens the charge from himself and the apostles to anyone. Formerly, Paul was, a, he was zealous for the law, and with that zeal, he persecuted Christians. And now Paul is zealous for the gospel, and he rebukes those who are trying to pervert it while protecting the church. He exhorts the Galatians to entertain a firm and serious conviction that the doctrine that they have received and embraced is, in fact, the true gospel. And now I exhort you, brothers and sisters, have a strong, unyielding conviction for the gospel, the only gospel that was preached to us from Scripture. Hold on to it and never let it go. Before, pre before preparing for this sermon, I, I felt differently about false teachers. I would often call them names, make jokes about them. This is what a lot of Christians do today. But after, after studying this text, one of the things that stood out to me was the severe consequence of being a false teacher. Uh, so instead of name-calling, I believe we should rebuke them and pray that the Lord would save them. Here, in this text, Paul publicly rebukes the Judaizers, right? And in 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul again publicly rebukes Alexander the coppersmith. So with that being said, sometime last week I was scrolling through Instagram. And I noticed a video of a man in Lakewood Church rebuking their false teaching. Well, Joel Olstein is the pastor of this church. The man called out Joel for not preaching the real gospel. Or never preaching repentance and just being a smooth talker. After reading some of the comments, I was even more disturbed that, that most people thought that he was wrong, right? And out of curiosity, I replied to one lady's comment who was defending Joel. And I asked her, has she ever heard Joel preach Jesus Christ dying for our sins and repentance? And she responded, yes. Honestly, I was surprised because whenever I flipped through the TV and he popped up, the gospel was never mentioned. In fact, the Bible wasn't even opened during the sermon. But even if, even if Paul, uh, Joel has preached the true gospel, before, on numerous occasions and in interviews, 
and his writings, Joel fails to proclaim that Jesus is the only way. Uh, he refuses to call things in Scripture sin like they are, like homosexuality. And he also teaches that believers are promised health and wealth. So by the authority of God, through his word, Scripture categorizes Joel Osteen as a false teacher. Paul says that Joel is under the judicial wrath of God unless he repents. And saints, the most loving thing we can do for Joel is confront him like this man did, rebuking him for his false teaching, and tell him what the scripture reads and pray for his salvation, right? Pray for repentance. And that goes for all false teachers. Back to uh, Galatians, verse 10. Paul goes on to say, he says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Uh, that, that word for connects this verse to the rest of our text. Previously, in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us, he gives out a, a double curse. One to any of the apostles or his colleagues, and the other to anyone who preaches a different gospel. Uh, most likely, the Judaizers were telling the Galatians that Paul was being a people pleaser by relaxing the laws that were strict, that strict standard that no one could keep. You know, they were saying that Paul wanted to make conversion easy for the Gentiles, so maybe they'd be able to join. And so when we arrived at verse 10, notice Paul twice used the term trying to please men. That gives us supporting details about what the Judaizers were telling the Galatians. And after Paul twice curses anyone who preaches a different gospel, look, he, he then asks the Galatians, do you still think I'm trying to please men? Even though I just told you that whoever preaches a different gospel is going to hell? Okay, I didn't think so, Paul says with these two rhetorical questions. Uh, Paul gives two options, and that's, are you seeking man's approval or God's? Uh, what would that look like today, you may be wondering. Well, to seek man's approval would be living in the same way that the world lives. You want them to validate your cause, but in reality, unregenerate man will never approve of God's will. Why? Because the word of God is convicting and is sharper than a double-edged sword. So what does it look like to seek God's approval? If you're seeking God's approval, then even when the world persecutes you, you'll stand for God. A couple examples would be marriage. Marriage is only between a man and a woman. The world has rejected this truth, so to seek God's approval will be to stand in truth in spite of what the world thinks. Another example would be abortion. Abortion clinics are everywhere. And as a Christian, you must be against this evil of murdering babies in the womb. Well, the world disagrees with you. They, they, they disagree with this truth. So which side will you choose? If you choose to be for it, you're seeking man's approval. But if you choose to be against it, now you're seeking God's approval. Go ahead and look at the rest of verse 10. Paul goes on to say, for if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. When Paul used the word still, he hints at a contrast with his former life, his life before Christ. As we said before, Paul was zealous for the law, which he displayed as a devotee of Judaism. Judaism. And it was only, rather, it was not only fueled to please God, but it was also a desire 
for the favor of men. He had all these credentials that he could put on display. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee concerning the law. Today, that's a man that has his MDiv from the top seminary. And then after that, he achieved the PhD at another top well-known seminary. And after that, they went on to serve under a well-known pastor for 10 years. But none of those credentials are wrong with themselves. But are you seeking God's favor or man? And Paul seems to think that seeking to please men and being a bondservant of Christ is a contradiction. He says that if I still please men, then I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. A bondservant can also be translated to slave. The idea is to seek God's will in all our ways. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Did you hear that? Paul said that anything that you do, everything that you do should be for the glory of God. Being a slave to God implies that we renounce our right to direct our own lives and submit to God. In ancient times, ancient times, slave owners took care of their slaves. And in a perfect way, God provides for his children. And that's us. Scripture says that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So for Paul to be a servant of God was nothing that a people pleaser would want to do. Being a servant of God was no easy task. Paul, in this very letter, writes, For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul had real marks on his body. He was stoned and dragged out of Lystra for preaching the gospel. And they intended to leave him for dead. He was also, at another time, beaten with a rod. He was shipwrecked three times. This is the life of a servant of God. And Paul saw it more beneficial to live for Christ than the world. Paul would later on in his life be martyred for his allegiance to Christ, for not bending or perverting the gospel. Saints, let me tell you what verse 10 means for us today. We can't be people pleasers. And bond servants of Christ at the same time. We may not have a life as difficult as Paul did, but know that all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So let's go ahead and wrap up. So after Frank finally found a company that would complete a specialized task, they told him the minimum quantity that he was able to order was 250 million fake bills. What did Frank do, you may be wondering. Well, like Frank said before, he ain't going back to work. He's tired of that. So he purchased the 250 million fake bills. It cost him around $50,000. So Frank finally had everything he needed. He rented a garage where he was able to store up all his equipment. He paid people to do his dirty work so he can keep his hands clean as much as possible. And throughout his illegal career, Frank made around $75 million. But on May 23rd, 2012, Frank was at his girlfriend's house, and he heard a loud bang on the door and shouting from outside. Well, his special guests were the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He was facing up to 14 years. Well, that was until the U.S. Secret Service stepped in. 
And now he was facing up to 60 years. He only ended up serving six weeks in prison after confessing what the rest of the forged notes were. The consequence for counterfeit bills in the U.S. is a felony charge punishable up to 20 years. The U.S. takes counterfeiting currency serious. How much more should the God who, the God who is the creator in the, of the heavens and the earth take counterfeiting his gospel? As we have said earlier, the consequence for this is hell. The difference between the United States and God is that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. So he is well aware of every individual who has counterfeited his gospel. So what are we, what are we to do? Well, the secret service has agents, and God has us. We are to call out false teaching and tell them the authentic, true gospel, praying that they will repent. Joel Osteen, repent.